Hey guys, thanks for joining us on the Captain's Collective. On today's episode, Austin Reinhardt and I sit down with John Swanson and hear about how he went from serving in the United States Marines to guiding out of marinas. John is a guide in the Big Bend area of North Florida near St. Mark's, and he also does some work in marine electronics. In this episode, he shares with us some insights as a guide, carryovers from his time in service, and a few good stories, including a rather interesting way of using butt caps on your rods. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. Success is a gift. Excellence is the only thing to strive for. Uh, he, 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 right. tried he tried to eat it. He tried to eat it. Hit him, hit him, hit him, hit him. He got him. He's on. Got two butt caps off the rods, filled them with tequila. We took a shot and out we went. There, there ain't no getting into it after that. It's, you're, you're hooked. It's a bad habit. And all the time flips, the, he's standing there ready to go for a tarpon. Anytime, he says, you talk so much, you're like a senator. Hey, John, thanks for being on with us. Some better circumstances with pizza and beer than the last time we saw you 20 uh, feet behind the boat, tied up, getting towed into the ramp. So uh, thanks for hanging out, man. Just start. What, what did you have going on today? Oh, woke up early, normal routine, got down to the uh, shop where I do the electric work and was there for nine and a half hours, pulling wires, cutting holes in fiberglass. Normal day, <laughs> really. So, so you're working with marine electronics, right? Yeah. Yeah. I do, uh, either anything from a GPS install to a complete rewire of the boat. Like the one today he brought it to me with, uh, the motors were on the back of it and he had just put a new fuel tank and the fiberglass was redone. Other than that, it didn't have a single wire in the boat. Clean slate. Clean slate. So start from scratch, pull all new wires, rig the motors. You got to prefer that though over some chicken chicken wire <laughs> nest of a rat's nest under a console. I watched a YouTube video did it myself <laughs> thought maybe you could touch this up for me yeah. my favorite is the 16 rolls of electrical tape holding everything together yep. including the wires no butt splices no way to connect them just taped together yeah that's like my house like I swear the person that owned the house before me was like a YouTube e- electrician you know and he was like doing all this <laughs> crap in the house and I started I started like taking off sockets and stuff and I was like what in the world <laughs> was this guy doing? But, um, that's interesting to, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but just kind of some of the Marine electronics and, uh, getting into your guiding, but also that kind of work. But could you just kind of share with us your story about how, uh, where you grew up and, um, your time in the military and then how you got into Marine electronics and guiding? I was born, raised here in uh, Crawfordville, uh, graduated high school, my grandparents and parents had paid for the uh, Florida prepaid, so they begged me and begged me to go to college. But I think since I was probably about 11, maybe 12, I was going to be in the military. Both my grandpas were in the military. One was a Marine. One was in the Navy. Yeah, one was in the, or actually, one was in the Army, too. So then uh started off high school, good grades. Wanted to go to Annapolis, be a fighter pilot. Yeah, fly jets, look cool, cool classes. Top gun. Top gun, yeah. <laughs> and I think, uh, I'd say the beginning of my junior year, I figured out what girls and beer and skipping school to go fishing and stuff like that, it kind of affects your grades a little bit. So, <laughs> no <laughs> Change longer, of plans. Yeah, no longer wanted to do the pilot thing. But uh, 9-11 happened, and that kind of changed a little bit of my goals on where I wanted to go. So, they taught me to do a year of college up in Tallahassee. Was enrolled for two semesters. Grades weren't real great, but joined the Marines. Did a couple weeks short of four years with them. Got out and a couple odd jobs. Owned a glass company for a year or so. Worked down at uh, St. Mark's Powder for the last five years until about, I guess it was this last April. I finally uh, took that leap and went full-time. And really when you were, you're working five years, the powder shop and you decide, man, I love fishing. You said you kind of really got into it in 11th grade, really started going all in on it. We, uh, I mean, I got pictures of me, my dad, my grandpa down at Mexico beach when I was four 
catching pinfish off the dock, and I thought I was a king. I'd catch all these pinfish, and Dad would throw them in a bucket and tell me how good I was doing. And I just remember looking back and always realizing my bucket was never getting full of pinfish. They kept disappearing. Dad was using them for bait and selling them to the guys on the pier for you know a quarter apiece and making <laughs> beer money with them. <laughs> hey, man, you can't blame them. Don't no. knock the hustle. No, he was doing good. So I did, uh, I guess it was about eight years ago now, I came back from the military, was living in Tallahassee, and I started getting more and more back into the inshore fishing, getting out in the water. And with transitioning out of the military and stuff like that, I realized fishing was my chi. That was my happy place. So I started a nonprofit. I started taking other veterans and military guys fishing for free. It was a nonprofit we ran. And uh, that kind of led me more into the guiding aspect of things because I started realizing I get probably more enjoyment out of taking someone and putting them on a fish that if I wasn't showing them and helping them, they might not be able to do on their own. And that's started doing the guiding. So I've been guiding with that aspect for eight years and then as a, I guess, regular charter for about five now, part-time while working at the gunpowder plant and building it up. What was that moment like where you just decided, did something happen that just triggered you into wanting to take that leap or was there something that was significant there or did you just kind of get to the point where you said, I don't really like my job that much. I'm just going <laughs> to go for it now or never. Um, I've always wanted to, you know, it's obviously it's quote unquote the dream job, but with having a daughter and bills and responsibilities, it was always, you know, our area doesn't have the market say of Mosquito Lagoon or the Keys, you know, the tourism's not quite as extreme here. So thinking about how to, make it where I could actually run enough charters per year to live and be comfortable, you know, never going to get rich doing it, but can't beat being on the water. You know, it's a good way to make it live in a day. So you just kind of ran the math a little bit and said, screw it. I'm going to go do it. And yeah. Well, been there for, and trying to go too detailed with it, but, uh, was there for five years and I always got in trouble for using my vacation after about a year at the plant, I got moved to research and development and we were supposed to have 80 hours of vacation, 40 a sick, 40 a personal. So I basically had 160 hours I could take off, which a lot of it I did for fishing. At your five year mark, you're supposed to get an extra week of vacation. Well, they changed the vacation, personal time, whatever the hell it's called, protocol. Well, I got bumped back to 80 hours for my fifth year instead of going up to 120 plus my 40 and 40. And I realized my fishing time literally got cut in half. Well, fishing while I was getting paid, vacation time got cut yeah. in half. Yeah. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I realized between that and my electric business was picking up. And I was like, okay, I'm there. There was days I'd go to work at the plant from six to two, get off, do a charter from three to seven, and then do wiring on a boat from eight till twelve or one, and have to be back at the gunpowder plant at five thirty. Did you have your nonprofit running before you went out and started guiding or was that something that started later? It was before I started doing that. Just, I did it for a little bit over two, maybe three years. It was just completely self-funded. If I was going fishing, I would just bring a veteran with me. If someone called me and said, Hey, look, I'm getting ready to deploy or just got back. Like, you know, let's go fishing. And it was just something I did. And I posted pictures and we got some like K2 coolers and some of the other guys, they sent us some product to use and it was really good. And then Medical people, um, guy Dale Bessie, he worked for iHeartMedia. He became the vice president, and he's a marketing guru genius guy, and he really pushed me to get the 501c3 and actually do fundraisers. And uh, not this last winter, but the two before that, we ran a redfish tournament in November, the Redfish Challenge, and that's where we got a lot of our funding. But the um, the guiding, I would say, kind of came from that. Because people started seeing, hey, you know, you're doing all this basically guiding, but I'm not a veteran. How can I go with you? So I was like, okay, well, went and got my captain's license, got all set up, and, you know, it cost a good couple dollars. And the next thing you know, I was like, all right, well, I ran five paying charters this year. And then the next year I'd run, you know, 60, 65 fish for brave charters. You know, I don't take – I never took tips, never got paid for anything. You put the gas in the boat, and that was it. And then that year I ran 20 paying charters. And they kind of started – building up and getting my own clients and kind of getting the name out and got to the point, like I said, between doing the fishing for the brave nonprofit trips, actual paying charters, 
being a father, having a full-time job. And then I started doing the Marine electrical also. It was just, like I said, that, that April was, that was it. I was like, yeah, way too many irons in the fire. So just to sort of paint the picture for those that are listening and don't really know, um, where you're fishing out of and what you're fishing for. What's I can't tell you all that. <laughs> not no, not your spots. We're not we're not asking your spots, but just sort of paint the picture of the panhandle area and what sort of species is your bread and butter. Um year round we do redfish trout. They're, you know, St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge is undisturbed. We have the I think it's the second largest continuous grass flat in the world. The other one's in Australia, so Apalachee Bay from steam hatchy all the way up all that is just natural grass flat so we got this pristine area there's no skyscrapers there's no buildings there's day we we go fishing and you won't see another boat you might see two you know if you go through the week so we got this uh the continuous grass flat and then there's no buildings you know you don't run into a lot of boat traffic it's not a very pressured fishery but year rounds trout redfish uh summertime starving time and then wintertime, there's certain areas you can go to in our area that get the big bull reds. And the smallest one you'll usually catch in that area is about 33, 34 inches. And we've called them up to 47. And that's on light spinning tackle or fly rod. So every, I would say every month of the year, there's something you can come down here and do, no matter what the weather is. Yeah. And it's such a different area to fish than what i'm used to i'm from the east coast of florida so it's mangrove fishing there's not a whole lot of oysters so i came up here and just the wildlife alone is incredible it's 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 pretty incredible incredible fishery incredible bottom here we got a lot of off run of lake okeechobee so the bottom's not as great over there as it is here so definitely understand how how beautiful the saint mark's um area is John, can you tell us too a little bit about some of the things that you carried with you from your time in the military to fishing and maybe some of the lessons you learned or habits or just things that you picked up translated over? I would think one of the biggest aspects would be the actual self-discipline. You know, there's days where if I'm going to meet a client at the ramp at six, I have to be up at four and you sleep in, you lose that client, you lose that day. So self-discipline um, I think I had it before the military, but organization, a little OCD, that always helps out a little bit. So, but mostly just the discipline, hard work, you know, there's days where it sucks. There's days where you got there and the fish aren't cooperating. The weather's not cooperating. I had a client throw a reel in the water before. I mean, just crazy stuff happens. And it's like the, they just got upset and threw a reel in the water. Or are you talking about on accident? No, like he went to cast and. I, I, I watched him cast and he just slung it out there and I see the top water go flying and I look and there's a Shimano flying by and I'm like, well, that's really interesting looking. Open look, the bail. <laughs> I, I look up at him. He's just standing with his hands out. He can, he's looking at his hands going, what the hell just happened? And I'm like, oh, there goes my combo. But yeah, there's an hour and a half walking around the water trying to find it. Did you find it? Yeah, we found it. I'm Did a, he help? No, he sat, there, <laughs> he, he sat there and pointed. I think it's over here. I think it's over here. But um, this looks like the water it fell in right here. Yeah, this looks just that, like uh, it. That discipline, being really smart thing, I, I realized after 30 minutes, 45 minutes of looking around that uh, he was throwing a topwater plug. Uh, so we went, we went and found the plug and traced it back to the rod, which his bail was open. So, yeah, it was good. Yeah, so one of the things that we were also talking about earlier um, was just marine electronics and how you got into that because that's, that seems kind of unique. I don't know very many people who work in that field, but how did you end up getting into that? That was a, <laughs> it was actually a dumb idea on mine and one of my buddy's parts. Uh, backstory on it is we had fished the Big Bang Classic. I think it's been four years now. And we went out after Kingfish, in a 24-foot Skeeter Bay boat. But we were, I think we were roughly 54, 55 miles offshore in a bay boat, which is not your normal idea. But we ended up winning that year. We got the biggest Kingfish, biggest fish in the tournament, and we'd entered the Kingfish jackpot. So I think we ended up winning 6000 cash and a $1,000 gift card to Bass Pro. So we really thought we were badasses. You were living life. <laughs> oh, yeah. What did you spend the card on? The Yamaha that you had to pull in the other day. A $1,000 down payment on a gift card. That's a pretty <laughs> no. good use oh, the for gift it. card, no. I forget what the gift card went to. But the rest of the money went to the motor on the back of the boat. 
but uh we thought we were big dogs you know just did real good a couple of the guys came up and they're like hey uh I thought you were like a redfish tarpon dude what are you doing out here kingfish fishing and i was like hey you know i'm just a fisherman yeah well a little cocky they talked me into doing the kingfish shootout in august in carabelle and um we went out that day and i'm probably overestimating a little bit but running out of the uh east cut beside st george there was a good six to eight foot rollers coming through the cut and we were still in the bay boat so <laughs> brandon looks at me i look at him i was like oh, i don't know man he's like dude we got like eight hundred dollars and fuel hotel slip he's like we got to go for it all right so he took a uh, two butt caps off the rods filled them with tequila we took a shot and out we went there's a new use for that i didn't realize <laughs> yeah. that was a thing so you got to hang out with you Wakola country boys to learn tips and and tricks like that for being out here on the boat and everything and and with work like working with electronics you know most people maybe they um do some research talk to some friends, talk to some other guides, get online, look at, look at some different specs on everything. And then it seems to me like a lot of times people, once they make up their mind, I'm Garmin or I'm Lawrence or whatever, you know, they stick to it. But what are some things that you see on your end about that, that we could kind of take away and learn about electronics? Mostly it's what the customer or what you want. I've had some guys who they use hummingbird and it's kind of familiarity. You're used to using hummingbird. The interface is the same. You like hummingbird. I've had guys who have gone from the ramps to Garmin because it's an easier interface. They don't need all the bells and whistles. They just want something that tells them this is where you are. This is how deep it is. You know, it might be able to link up to your troll motor. It might not. So basically whatever your preference is. And sometimes there's no way to do it and for, you know, find something in your price point and go with it. And if you don't like it, sell it and switch it out. And so you work in, you know, marine electronics, but you're also a guide. What do you have on your boat? I'm running a hummingbird. Mm, I don't remember what number it is, but it's six years old. But for 99.9% of the stuff I do, it works just fine. I mean, I've caught snapper, grouper, cobia, kingfish, tarpon, redfish, trout, inshore, offshore. You know, if you do the right things and get lucky, you can catch fish no matter what machine you have. But it's definitely helpful to use good equipment. Yeah, and most of this equipment is outperforming the people that are using it nowadays um so you can like you said you can pretty much buy anything and get away with how much knowledge you know about it or like we know about it um i know chip on his boat he's got side scan and that just blows my mind seeing the images that come up on that i that's way over my head but just the, the technology is definitely outrunning the user i feel oh yeah that's what there's the side scan, bottom scan. I've seen some, they have a 3D scan now. I forget which one it's called, but it actually has like a 3D picture. It shows the transom of the boat. And as you're going over it, it'll actually give you a 3D image of what's below the boat on the screen. So you can, I think you can go overboard sometimes. You know, if you got a 17 foot skiff and you got radar and side scan, bottom scan, and you might not need all that. So really most times when I get customers, I try to talk to them about, the kind of fishing they do, what they need, and what their experiences with electronics are. So, if I'm wanting to do stuff in the got like in the flats, I mean, what are you going to tell me to look for? Just a good chart plotter so I can navigate that water. I mean, what's the the thought process there? Um, depending on what you're running, but usually just something to tell you where you're at, a good base map, and then get a chips. So, you know, you got some of the oyster bars and channel markers. But um, a lot of times, what I try to suggest guys to do some kind of through hole transducer. That way, while you're running you still can see bottom because if you're in an unfamiliar area and you're running like right now our water is dark we've been out there running i'm looking i'm like i know i'm in like six seven foot of water and then next thing i know my bottom machine is telling me i'm in a foot and a half two foot of water and i'm like oh i'm a little bit off course and if you're in an area you don't know and you're running you won't be able to see the depth unless you have that right transducer do they have the technology yet where you can have community marking on rocks like we were talking about some areas that get kind of hairy around here but like, do they have that yet where I can be like, man, there's a rock right there. I'm going to go ahead and mark that. And then it pop up on yours. They do. I wish I could tell you what company it was, but they do have a, they basically just call it like a sharing thing where you upload to like a cloud or to the internet, all your information and it'll share with everybody else. And I wish I could remember what it was called though. Cause that would save some time. I'm sure we can look it up and put there's it in the apps. show notes. Yeah. There's like yeah. Navionics and all those where you can, you can use the paid service and then you get the communal chart plotting but and i wonder how active people are on that like if i pay all this money but is 
everybody else marking rocks on there? Is that going to give me some false confidence to you? I mean, well, I mean, I'd, I might be that guy that goes to certain areas and I mark rocks every five yards. Yeah. Just to say, just say you don't go That's over John's there. That's John's spot. <laughs> don't, don't go over there. There's too many rocks. Yeah. I'm going to say, man, that must be a good spot. Look at all that structure there. Yeah. Get over there and figure it out. And, yeah. And, and if I'm going like deep sea and I'm doing snapper or whatever, what, what type of rigs are you putting on boats for that? Um, mostly just your traditional sonar works, but the side scan you were talking about, it does help a lot because I'm sure anybody that's ever gone offshore has done it. You know, you get your number and you go out to it and you, sometimes you have to sit there and go back and forth and look for it. Maybe your number is a little off. Maybe, you know, your GPS isn't quite catching where you're at. So that side scan, you would actually be able to troll by where you're at and look left and right and okay, it's 20 feet off to the left from where we're at now. So that would help. But, um, the biggest, I guess you'd say asset I have on my boat for offshore is my trolling motor. It's got the anchor lock on the Minn Kota. I don't even carry an anchor rope longer than 20 feet. Wow. That, that's just for, you know, anchoring up while we're fishing. Yeah, that's a nice setup. And if you would have had that side scan technology, you probably could have found that rod and reel a lot faster. You could have side scanned <laughs> it. That looks like one of the ads in the magazines where it's like it's got the details of every little nook and cranny of some pirate ship down <laughs> on the ground or whatever you're fishing on. But yeah, and, and with thinking through just some of some of uh, the electronic stuff, I mean, how much does that impact the way that you guide? Are you learning a lot and translating a lot into there? Or is it usually kind of show up and do the work and is there a lot of overlap there? Mm. I'm I more than likely I could say I've learned certain things that I don't want on my boat from seeing other people's boats. You know, my boat's pretty basic. It's got the GPS, little radio, and trolling motor and power pole. And yeah. and just so we know, what tell us about your boat setup. Uh, it's a ninety eight, it's a seventeen foot master angler from Maverick. And the only thing original on the boat right now is the hull and the fuel tank. We've rewired it replumbed it which i'll get to that one in a little bit i guess but uh new motor new electronics everything on it but i uh, think like i said it's pretty basic live well pump bilge pump you know fuse panel it's basic less things to go wrong less things to go wrong but i would suggest everybody if you buy a used boat go through it um i say a month and a half ago i was running in from fishing and came down landing there in landark and felt water come up and hit me in the back look back at about a half inch of my transom sticking out of the water mm. the previous owner had replumbed the live well and where the elbow on the plumbing came up he had pvc pipe and it wasn't threaded and it wasn't glued so i just had a 90 degree elbow slick onto the pipe and it was kind of rough that day and it finally popped off and the high speed pickup was just throwing water in the spraying boat spraying water in the hole yep. and do you, i'm guessing that you like guiding more than working in the electronic field Honestly, no, it's, it's enjoy more enjoyable at times, but it's almost more stressful, if that makes sense. You know, there's a lot more pressure in the guiding, the electronics. Uh, yeah, I have to get it right. Usually I'm on some kind of timeline, but I can do my own thing. If, you know, if I pull the wire and it's the wrong color, I can pull it back out and put a new wire. If someone's, say we're fly fishing for tarpon, if I tell them to cast a little bit to the left and they need to go a little bit further to the right, then that's on me. There's no second chances you know and that's that whole so, pressure that guides feel i mean that's that's real and that's coming from yeah. a lot from somebody who spent you know several <laughs> years in the back of a humvee you know serving overseas to say man you know with guiding there's a lot of pressure because that's not being dramatic but what what do you do to try to handle that pressure as a guide i, I don't know yet tequila shots <laughs> figure figure it out and tell me tequila <laughs> shots off the butt of the of, off the butt of the rod no i mean or, or put it this way, like, what do you feel like makes a good guide? That's a good question. I would think someone who is actually dedicated to their client success and enjoyment, but I've had old, old time guides, guys that taught me how to guide. They say your job is to pick your client up on time, let them have some fun and bring them back safe. You know, if the fishing, fishing's fishing, if it cooperates, like it should, and you did your work, great. But that's the that's the where the pressure comes in. I think is there are times where the fishing just isn't on point, and this person's paying a good bit of money and putting their time into you to basically put out and provide for them. You know, use your knowledge, use your off days where you went fishing by yourself, use that knowledge to put them on a fish. And there are some days it's just you know, it's fishing. Yeah, it, it just doesn't work out. No. 
Like those, those are hmm, not being they're they're few and far between these days, but it still it still happens sometimes. And I think most people are pretty understandable about that, you know, for the most part. What do you do when you got a difficult client in the boat? Is there any tips you got there for dealing with difficult clients? Hmm. One thing I would say is get them talking about something that they enjoy talking about so the time goes by faster. But honestly, I've I've had very, very few clients that were unruly. I've had a few guys drink too many beer. That one guy, he uh, fishing was a little slow, so he broke out a bottle of Jim Bean. He was lit by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, like fell off the boat, kind of lit. So, <laughs> Man. <laughs> that was a little difficult. But So as soon as he left, went home, I uh, realized he left the Jim Bean in the boat. So that kind of took a little bit of the edge off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Good <laughs> tip. Yeah. yeah, that was your tip. Yeah, here's here's half my Jim Bean <laughs> handle here for you. It was a great day out here, if I can remember any of it. And um, but you know, I, my dad had somebody tell him when he first started getting into guiding that the first time someone fishes with you, it's to catch fish, and then the second time somebody fishes with you, it's because they like you. To you, do you realize that you kind of enjoy that second or third or fourth time? with somebody more than you, that first time. I think that's where having repeat clients, they become, I think kind of like you guys said, they become more friends. You get a little more laid back. You start making dick jokes, you know, you start talking about women and then you start getting personal. Yeah. And then it minus the fact that you still got to remember they're still paying you for your time to put them on fish and do your job. But it's, it takes a lot of the pressure off because it's more relaxed setting, but yeah, if they're not catching fish, you can take jabs at them. Oh, yeah. If they're not doing the right thing. They, yeah. yeah. And they've been with you before. You know? Yeah. Another thing that I think is really stressful, you know, you have the fish cooperating, but then you got the weather, you know, and you're trying to work around the weather. And, you know, I even think about that tournament you all are fishing, and it was just the weather wasn't cooperating real well. But, you know, it's it's one of those challenges that a lot of guides face that um, really they, they have to be able to pivot and make changes and, um, you know, be able to adapt. But I feel like when you develop that relationship with a client, you can kind of ease it up a little bit and be like, you know, they understand, you know, hey, this guy's going to do everything he can with all his knowledge and all the time he's put in to try to get me on a fish and it's his boat and it's his gear and he spent a lot of time out here. But I think if you're fishing with somebody who, you know, knows what they're doing, they're going to be kind of understanding too at the days where things don't cooperate. That's what most... Most guys recently, because, I mean, like you talk about the weather, you know, the end of this starving season got kind of rough with the rain and it, the water clarity. And I had a few guys who were return clients from earlier in the summer, and they had really stellar days. Like, this was the, one of the guys. It was his first day ever actually full full fly fishing for tarpon on the first day. And he fed a fish, but while I was yelling, strip, 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 he forgot the strip. He was like, well, I was waiting for him in the pool. So he fed a fish, but he didn't hook it. Mm. and then the second day he came out he put four in the air so mm. those are his first two days this year back in i think it was like mid-june fast forward to the end of july he came back with me and he had one of those days where we were seeing fish but they just weren't they weren't patterned like they we thought they should or what i thought they should and we were moving around a lot trying to get in from and he had kind of a bad two days but he was still obviously i mean he was still cool because he came back again for three more days later that month but that was kind of what you're getting at. The, uh, I guess he was more fishing with a friend, and he kind of understood, okay, John knows what he's doing enough to put me on fish, but there are aspects that I can't control. Especially with tarpon. I mean, especially with tarpon. I mean, if you could only fish one type of fish the rest of your life, would it be a tarpon? I knew you were going to ask that. I think I'd probably stick with a redfish. Honestly, I love tarpon. I'm with they, you on that one. Yeah. They taste so much better out here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I I love Tarvin. They they drive me nuts some months or sometimes of the year. But I can do redfish year round. There's so many different ways you can target them, you know, live bait, artificials, fly, skinny water, deep water, you know, near shore, offshore. There's just so many different ways to target them. And I do like to eat fish, so it's kind of cool to catch something you can take home to eat every now and then. Yeah, I think the the patience aspect is what does it for me. I rather go, I rather spend two hours chasing down fish that I see than like two hours trying to figure out a pattern of fish that might be there. I think that's what it does it for me for redfish, is I can see them. That's what I had the uh, the guy who taught me tarpon fish. He told me it was tarpon fishing is hours of boredom, 
followed by moments of just sheer panic. And there's times that's what it is. You know, you're out there for an hour or two hours and you won't see a fish. Then all of a sudden a string of six will come by and you're sitting there picking your nose, fly rods kind of hanging down, you know, flies hooked on a towel or something stupid. And there goes your six fish. They just swam right by because you're playing around, not paying attention. Yeah. I've heard, uh, I've heard catching a tarpon on fly, like it being a success. I've heard it described as organized chaos. Like it is never not going to be chaos, but when it works, it's because it was organized chaos. That's what that same client, that was his goal this year was to catch a tarpon. I tried to explain to him, like, look, this is your first time, first year doing this. Like, if you can catch a tarpon, I'm damn proud of you. But there's so many steps I have to go into it. Once you see them, you have to do the cast. You have to do the right strip. You have to, you know, set the hook right. When they jump, you got about it. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So he never caught one this summer. I think he ended up putting 14, 15 in the air maybe. Like, he did good for his first year. But, like you said, it's it was chaos, like, He'd hook a fish, he'd go in the air. Next thing you know, he's trying to grab a GoPro, strap on his GoPro while he's fighting a tarpon. I'm like, what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> Catch your fish and we'll get over it later. And I could see a lot of clients, if they're not familiar with tarpon fishing, just being a little overwhelmed because maybe in their mind they're thinking kind of what you described about the St. Mark's and some of the grass flats where, you know, I'm going out here in nature and you're tarpon fishing and there's some other guides around you and I've been out on the flat with you and you know, it's not just organized chaos when you're trying to feed a fish, but you know, there's other people out on the flat. You can hear their conversations and John, you have stories about people (laughs) yelling at you, man. You're the last guy. You're a big dude, former military. You're the last dude I'm going to yell at on a flat. But I mean, that's, that's a part of it. You know, that's a part of tarpon fishing is dealing with the, the carnival that can happen out there sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's our area, especially, there's dudes from here, there's dudes from out of town, there's guys that can only go on the weekends, there's guys that take their vacation time to go through the week. I mean, there's different levels of etiquette, and like with Josh, when I first met Josh, I had no clue who he was. I realized where he was set up was kind of a little bit where I wanted to be, so we just kind of hung out back, and he's like, hey, if you want to come over here, come on over. Like, he was real cool about it. I would think that 99.9% of the dudes, if you pull up somewhere either you're not familiar with or – Maybe they're close by or where you want to be. If you're cool with people, they'll be cool with you. And that's always been my motto. Like, I think in the last four or five years, I've had one one time I had to raise my voice at somebody, and that's because I got called a couple bad names, and that wasn't real cool. So, <laughs> Yeah, and then you have that story about being out. I guess you were red fishing during duck season. And for those of you that don't know, we have a lot of, uh, that's just a bad idea (laughs) (laughs) for those of you that don't know about the panhandle. Uh, we have a lot of duck commanders up here, uh, that like to target redheads and target anything that flies and Drake Armada. Yeah. The other, uh, beautiful Florida species of ducks, but it gets crowded out in certain areas. And I know you were talking about just, you're, you might be going out there to catch a redfish and have, you know, 10 or 12 boats pulled up in the grass, you know, with decoys out and it can be kind of a circus out there. And you said you had a run in with some guys out there. I've had several, but yeah, those guys were, um, they were trying to race to get to a spot and they ran wide open, probably within about 20 yards of me in a foot of water while I was pulling around looking for reds. But I've had those guys do it. I've been out there looking for reds and have people yelling at me from the grass line. Hey, you're too effing close, man. You're scaring ducks away. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And couple words get changed, and I was a little bit younger, so I was like, hey, if your damn piece of, you know what, shotgun can even hit me out here, I'm too close. And a couple rounds went off, and I heard some pellets going, so I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I am a little too close. But Yeah, the only way I'm bad-mouthing John out on the flat is if I have a real fast boat. You know, that's my philosophy is I better get back to that landing because I don't want to meet him out on that landing. And I think everybody has that when it comes to tarpon fishing and uh, just crowded spaces. One of the things about some of the guides I know down in Homosassa, they have radios and you talk about that etiquette and that respect. And that's yeah. something that Jimmy Long on an earlier podcast talked about, but you know, just having respect for each other and just realizing everybody's out here trying to make a living or the guy that's out here on the weekend, you know, he's worked all week and he's finally getting to get out on the water. And I think everybody needs to pay respect to each other, but you know, he's not less than a guide who gets the opportunity to go out there every single day. Hell no. It's, I've heard a bunch of different things every year, but like it's water. You, you can't own the water. You can't own the spot. There are certain things. And I think I've heard the exact words were certain things you learn over your time on the water that kind of make what you know, your intellectual like, property. Yeah. I think that's the word I heard before. <laughs> that is true. 
But there's certain, you know, like you said, the guys who were out there on the weekends. Like I said, when I met Josh, he was just recreational fishing. But he was where I wanted to be. I had no clue who he was. I was like, all right, that's his, you know, he beat me here. It's his spot. Roll with it. You know, if you, you, if you know your craft well enough and how you talk about earlier, having different plans, like plan B, plan C, like I pulled up spots before and gung-ho at 6 a.m. I'm, you know, I'm going to get here. I'm first daylight. And I pull up and I see two other boats already sitting there. It's like, all right. You know, you don't say nothing to the clients. You go, all right, guys, well, we got to change our plan a little bit. And you just kind of roll with it. It's my feelings and what I've experienced is if you show your ass too much in front of your clients, it kind of ruins their experience. So for sure, I could feel that. And I've been on the boat with Josh before and we've been out there and, you know, we're hanging out and it's just me and him and somebody that we know and that's been good to us and respect us pulls up and we'll be like, hey, man, no, you, you can go ahead and hop up here. You know, we're just hanging out. You got a client on the boat. We get that. But at the same time, if, if a guide starts to, you know, want to get into a pissing match and it's like, well, you got somebody on the boat paying and expecting something. I got a cooler on the boat filled with food and I'm no one's paying on our boat. We don't want to get into this match because I'll go home happy either way, you know? And I think that's just something that, that I've learned that the respect part of guiding. I mean, even, even with you, I mean, I know you're a little bit younger of a guide than some of the other podcasts we've had, but I mean, you talked a lot about people who have mentored you. What did, what did those relationships look like? What do they look like? And how did you get into them as a young guy? Oh man. Um, I'd probably say one of the biggest influential ones was Mike Locklear. He's the one that really introduced me to fly fishing and tarpon fishing. And I also, I think, I think he was being that old, you know, old dude on Facebook looking at everybody else's fishing pictures and messaged me about going fishing. And I think, I think I took him redfish fishing the first time. He's like, Oh yeah, that was cool. You know, we used to do this back in Homosassa he, I think he was similar to Harry. Like he used to guide down the keys. He guided in Homosassa. That's all he's ever done is guide. I think he had a real job. He said for a couple of months and he quit he hated it. But, um, we went redfish fishing, and he was like, oh, let's, let's show you something. And he took me out there tarpon fishing and completely ruined my summers for then on out. And was there things that you did to try to position yourself, you know, to try to, you know, respect him and show that you respected him that put you in a situation where you felt like he, he wanted to invest in you some? I think I probably asked too many questions. Like, even tying it into the guy in the electronic thing, as well as I think I know both my crafts, I there's still days I come home and I'll read online and I'll do research and I'll call the actual companies and say, Hey, look, this is what I'm working with. This is what I want to do. Do y'all recommend this is okay. It's fishing electrics. I like to say anything you do at your craft. If you ever think you need to quit learning or think you're, you know, completely taught up, you're done. You're going to get passed. So. And I've noticed that even with some of the older guides that we've interviewed and spent some time around that they're still learning. And it's just that respect thing. Like they'll, they'll learn from younger guys and you know, we're hanging out and people are asking about websites and search engine optimization and some things that, that they don't fully understand. And they're telling us about things that we didn't even know we needed to know. You know, they were answering questions that we didn't know we were supposed to ask. And I think that's one of the things I love about the outdoor community is that mentor kind of give back, pay it forward environment where you know if you're fortunate enough you have a father who passes some things along to you uh, but for a lot of guys they don't have that and so they go out and they're just they're trying to learn and I think that's one of the things too like I know when we go out and we're trying to learn we just try to position ourselves in a place where we're not trying to get into some sort of altercation with a guide we man we want to respect guides and learn from them it's a big reason we have this podcast is we want to learn from each other and um, I think that's something that's neat to hear about each guy talk about their mentor relationship and, you know, down the road, what it looks like for them to pay it forward. I mean, what do you feel like makes a great mentor? I would probably say a good mentor besides being willing to give all their information, would maybe be to listen a little bit too. Cause Mike, when I had questions, Mike would listen. And if I had an idea, I'd tell Mike, Hey, look, you know, have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried that? And he did tell me, yeah, it didn't work, or I did, but why don't you try it too? You know, it's kind of like you said, there's a give and a take, and there's just a, a respect for each other. Like, he wouldn't have probably taken the time to show me what he knew and introduce me to it if he didn't see that I was willing to, one, learn it, 
but that I had a little bit of knowledge of my own that maybe he didn't know about a little. Absolutely. And when you think about that, what's the biggest change that you've made? Like, are there any big changes you've made since when you first started guiding where you've made some shifts because of some things you've learned through mentors and just different experiences? Different experiences, definitely. You know, I learned if you're at the boat ramp 30 minutes for your clients, you're late because you're always going to forget something. Something's always going to be missing. You won't be able to find your pliers or something stupid. But I don't know, mostly the mentors is just like Mike, especially, you know, he used to be called the hammer. He was a hammer on his clients. So they screwed up. He was a hammer, but he taught me that tying into what we were talking about earlier is the etiquette on the water. You know, like I said, the first time I met Josh, he was fishing in a spot and me and another guy had pulled up and we were fishing our spot, which was pretty close to his. Well, we shifted our position a little bit and he looked up at us and goes, Hey, um, I don't have a clue what I'm doing out here, guys. This is what I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Y'all are, but I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I'm on y'all's way. And I was cool about it. I was like, yeah, I was like, actually, you're kind of in the way. And I told him why, which we were looking, you know, looking for tarpon. I told him, you're kind of in the way because this is the way the fish are going to swim. He said, okay. Well, he jumped back in line with us. Just, you know, you couldn't tell the difference if you looked at our boat besides he was by himself. And I think that was the day he put three in the air and landed his first one. So, Yeah, and that photo went viral because Josh is – and I love that photo of Josh – Um Josh been one of my best friends for a long time. He's a smiley dude and he's leaning <laughs> off the side of that boat and two guys from Tarpon Trust are in the boat with him and it's just about to capsize. <laughs> yeah. And John, he was so excited to get that video out there or that photo out there. And it, I mean, a bunch of different people posted it yeah. and everybody well, he was, was, he was excited about him. holding it, like holding the photo and like waiting a little bit before putting it out. And then it just was like everywhere getting reposted. <laughs> but the thing they were talking about, if anybody's seen this photo is that it looks like the boat's about to capsize (laughs) and josh is so excited because he's got this fish in the in the picture and all anybody's talking about is is kind of cracking jokes at the boat and he's got an awesome huge bone fish and it's an awesome boat but it's a funny photo because it's it's pretty it's pretty close to the edge if that tarpon would have been a few pounds heavier he might we might be fishing his his boat for redfish you know (laughs) later in the year so i've seen he was that's what we we were we actually hooked up to one fish and i had a client and he had a a reel that wasn't up for tarpon. It was a freshwater. I think it was like a nine weight, 10 weight. And we fought that fish for almost an hour and 15 minutes and finally pulled the hook. Yeah. And by the time we came back, Josh had gotten all three of his. So I'll tell you the thing about Josh though, just a single dude in a boat hooks the fish, throws the anchor line motors around. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's going to have all those things go right, it's going to be him. And I got the worst luck ever when it comes to weather. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, no one's fished with me the past year and not got rained on yourself included being, I mean, it just, I'm bad, I'm bad weather bug, but you know, I think about what you just said earlier where, you know, you pick your client up, you have fun with them and you get them back safe. And for me, you know, I love to catch fish, but I love the people I fish with. And, you know, there's some some things that you could do as a guide that would just make me just not want to be on the boat, you know, cause I'm trying to relax and enjoy myself and have conversation. And, um, I think there's a balance and there's a lot of different guides have different styles and some are hammers and, uh, some are friends and everybody's different. And I'm not going to go and tell somebody the right or wrong way, but you know, um, everybody has their preferences. I mean, for you, how do you try to find that balance and trying to, you know, Hey, I'm going to shoot straight with this client. I want to get you on a fish, man. But at the same time, I don't want to make you feel bad and, you know, tear you down either. I think it's mostly in how I present ideas is what I would say. I had some, actually, favorite client from this summer, Don. He he said when I hurt his feelings, I did it with a smile. So if I was like, Don, what, what what the hell was that? Like, he casted a fish, and I was like, all right, start stripping it slow, slow. And he picked it up and went to cast again. I was like what the shit just happened? Like, what did you do, man? <laughs> but you said you like to present it in an idea like, um, Hey, here's an idea. Hey, here's Maybe an idea. Don't... Never do that again. Yeah. How about you <laughs> not take the bait out from in front of the <laughs> yeah. fish two seconds before they hit it. But, um, um it's, it's just like, I think with any personal interaction you have with somebody, you got to kind of feel it out a little bit. You know, I've had clients who've come out with me and I make a, maybe borderline inappropriate joke. And I kind of gauge, okay, he didn't laugh. He didn't even turn around and look at me and smile. He just kind of kept doing his thing. Like, All right, maybe we'll, we'll cut those jokes out. So you kind of fill out your clients, and there's sometimes people just don't jive together, you know. my my I think what I would call my style is laid back, have a good time, and don't let them see how hard you're working or how hard you're stressing trying to make everything work out. And you're a fun guy to be around. 
but definitely one of the things I like about you is you're not afraid to be yourself. And I think that's important too. Cause it's like, like you said, you know, I mean, some people, some people like it when you're a little rough with them, rough them up a little bit, tear yeah. them down. And some people, um, I've, I've been, I've, I was thinking about a day that we were out there and there's a guy with you and you could tell he was just relaxing and hanging out and you can, you got to be able to read that as a guide, but you also got to be, be true to yourself. And I think you do, you do a great job with that. What's been some things that have been influential for you as a guide that have been helping? You talked about going home and reading and are there any like books or blogs or just certain things that you feel like have been really shaping for you as a guide? No, I mean, I've, <laughs> when I first moved into my house, uh, Mike Lockler sent me three DVDs and they were the Chasing Silver. It was Andy Mills and some of those other guys down the Keys, their Tarpon series. Mm-hmm. And that we didn't, I didn't have internet, cable. I had the DVD player and I had those three DVDs and I think I had the Little Mermaid. Did you have a phone at the time? Because I know you've been able to go through <laughs> some phones. You can crush some phones. You're on your third phone this season. Fourth. Fourth phone Fourth this phone season. Fourth phone season. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, but I'd watch those repeatedly and it's a TV show, so they're mostly for entertainment, but there's stuff you can pick up on. And then mostly just talking to other guides and what they're seeing. Other guys are just fishing too. I mean, I've got buddies who I would borderline say they're as good, if not better fishermen than I am, but I don't, they don't guide. They don't have that want. They don't have that mindset. You know, they have, they fish their way and they've perfected it almost to an art. And that's their way though. Like if you try to take them and they try to teach it to someone else, they're not going to do it in six hours. So, and Harry had a great thing in his podcast and he was talking about Steve Huff and he said, everything that you need to be a great guide, um, is 18 feet long and fits in your hands. And he was talking about a push pull. Oh, I was thinking something else. All right. I was like, <laughs> Good clarification yeah, there, <laughs> but just time on the water, you know, that in a lot of the TV shows and stuff, I mean, we, one of the reasons we want to start this podcast is because we want to have some of these conversations that they don't, the TV shows a lot today and I enjoy watching them, but you know, it's all about the shot and the entertainment. Yeah. And I mean, man, some of those tarpon shows with the drones, you can see the fish and I mean, it's incredible, right? Yeah. And you can learn some stuff for sure, but definitely paying your time on the water and interacting and um, being friendly with, with other guides. Um, is there anything that, that to you really, um, you're wanting to work on the next few years as a guide? Hmm. Honestly, I'd probably say keep working on everything. I don't have anything. Like you said, I think I'm, I think I'm fun enough to be around on the boat. You can stand it for a few hours and I don't usually, there's moments I'll sit down and just rest my feet, but like, I'm not gonna be one of those dudes that pulls up to an oyster bar and say, here's a, here's a live shrimp. I'm gonna sit down and wait for you to catch something kind of thing. So, but probably just keep working on everything, you know, work on my craft. You know, like I said earlier, you're never going to perfect it. I don't think to the point where I feel like, okay, I've got it down. So just keep doing it. Everything I've been doing. And I don't want to get too deep, but, um, we're going to go there. We're going to venture into the depths <laughs> where you're going to need your hummingbird, um, you know, scanner and everything. But, you know, you're you're pretty young and you're guiding and you got a family and, and you're fishing. And when you kind of think about the future and you think about what success looks like for you, I mean, what are some things that come to mind? I'll probably be overly wrinkled from the sun. Daughter will be healthy. And I'll be happy. I mean, like I said earlier, this – I don't think it's one of those sports or careers that you can really get rich in. Fate lines up and you get the right gig. You know, I know there's guys who they are the sole captain for multimillionaires. They get an annual salary. They get to use the client's boats anytime they want to guide out of. But whenever that client calls and says, hey, I'm coming down for five days, let's go fishing. That's your client for those five days, no matter what else you have going on. But I don't know. I'm happy with what I'm doing now. There's long days. Started at five yesterday. I don't think I laid down to one thirty last night. Back up at five today. So long days, but I get to go to bed in my own bed every night. I'm not doing shift work. You know, I'm my own boss. If I screw something up or I don't deliver, it's on me. Better than gunpowder. Oh, much better than gunpowder. <laughs> and glass work. But uh, another fun question. I stole this from a podcast by a guy named Tim Ferriss, and he asked a lot of his people this, but if you could have a billboard put up, and it could say one thing on it. Is there what, what would you put on your billboard? Damn, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> Should have emailed me this one ahead of time so I had an idea. 
You got a life motto or anything? <laughs> Probably something I would say my dad taught me. It was don't sweat the small stuff because in the end, when you look back, it's all going to seem like small stuff. So shit happens. All you can do is roll with it and keep going. You know, I've kind of feel like by now I've picked my path on what I want to do in life and have some kind of a general direction of which way I'm going. But if, you know, have a bad day, fishing doesn't cooperate or I wire up a boat and I get a call from a client the next day and uh, Hey, this won't turn on. It sucks, but you learn from it. You make it right and carry on. Keep doing what you're doing. Roll with the punches. Yeah. Yeah. I have a five year journal and you just write like one line every day and I don't write it nearly every day. But the person that I'd heard talking about it said, look, if you do a five-year journal and every day uh, from each year stacks on top of each other, and you could write something in there that's just just bothering you so bad. Oh, today I went out and my client threw the reel in the water and I couldn't put him on a fish and, you know, X, Y, Z happened and I broke my phone and, oh, man, you know, all those. <laughs> <laughs> but all that stuff could happen. You're so ate up over it. And if had you not wrote it down, a year would go by and you'd forget it. And I think that gives some good perspective. Man, thanks so much for hanging out with us. If people want to follow you, and you are a fun follow on social media, um, what, what can they do? Um, I have my personal is uh, Captain John Swanson, C-A-P-T John Swanson. The uh, North Florida Inshore is the charter site, and St. Mark's Pro Marine is the uh, electric Instagram site. And then the charter is uh, NorthFloridaInshore.com for the website. Well, we uh, really appreciate it sitting down with us yeah. i appreciate the pizza yeah <laughs> pizza and beer always hey, a good man. time man that's all you have to say i'll be there <laughs> thanks so much don't sweat the small stuff thanks for hanging out with us i appreciate it guys thank you for listening to the captain's collective if you've enjoyed this podcast it would really mean a lot if you just take some time to share it with some friends throw it up on social media or shoot out a few messages for more information about the captain's collective you can go to the captain's thank you for listening we hope you have some great days on the water we're out. Hey guys, thanks for checking out the Captain's Collective podcast. Before we dive in, I just wanted to let you know about one of our sponsors, Nikon. Nikon is a trusted company when it comes to optics, and they make a wide range of products for the outdoors. From cameras to binoculars to hunting scopes, Nikon has earned a reputation for building great gear. What you might not know about Nikon is that Nikon engineers their products from the inside out and creates an optical system specific to the function of each product. And because Nikon is one of the few makers of optical glass, they have the unique advantage to specify the exact type of glass needed to optimize the performance of their product. For the water, I recommend the Ocean Pro series. They are powerful, fog-resistant, feature a built-in compass display, and have a large exit pupil that makes holding steady in rough water easier. And like all Nikon products, they come with a lifetime guarantee. So make sure to check them out and give yourself the advantage.